I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the, the Sirens. The Sirens. <laughs> okay, so to, today we're talking about the movie The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is a 1948 film that was directed by uh, John Houston, who also wrote the screenplay based on a novel by B. Traven, who was a fairly mysterious figure. John Houston, of course, is part of a an acting dynasty that includes four generations of actors. Music is done by Max Steiner, who we've seen previously in, um, or I guess we've heard him previously in Now Voyager. He also did the music for uh, Casablanca, which is the only movie I really care about. And <laughs> so the, the movie stars Walter Houston, who is John Houston's father, and Humphrey Bogart. The like one sentence synopsis of this movie is that it is the story of two characters, Fred Dobbs and Bob Curtin, who are two Americans stuck for reasons I think unknown in Mexico at the beginning of the movie, homeless and looking for work. Through a series of events, meet up with an old prospector. Um, and they form a team to go mine for gold in the Sierra Madre Mountains. Romance does not ensue in this movie. <laughs> I would say paranoia and mental illness ensue. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, so that is the short synopsis. Do you have any trivia about the movie? There's a lot for this movie, and I really did not know much about this film. Neither of us had watched it before. So it wasn't until after and I like I don't do the research till after so I can just yeah. experience it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until after that I realized that this is like considered one of the best movies of all time and <laughs> so all of this trivia exists for it and I'll just cover a little bit. So you mentioned that Walter Houston and John Houston worked together and they both won Academy Awards for this movie and it was the first time that a father and son won for the same movie. Oh. John Houston actually appeared in the film and as the American tourist who like pops up a couple times in the beginning of the movie. Who Humphrey Bogart asks for money? Yeah, keeps asking him over and over again and he's like, Hey, I'm the same guy. <laughs> Stop asking me. That was kind of a hilarious thing. I thought. Yeah, it also seemed unbelievable that Dobbs would not realize it was the same person. (laughs) Yeah, well, we can talk about this later, maybe, in social justice. I feel like in my experience, actually today I went, was in the Trenton train station for the first time in a long time, and somebody asked me for money, and I recognized them as the, like, the same person who asks me for money every single time that I'm in Trenton train station, and either they did not realize that or they just you know ask so many people or just can't like they can't be discriminating because they you know desperately need the money or i don't know it's interesting most of the same people ask me for money on my commute every day there are a couple people who have stopped asking me so it must be like hit or miss with whether or not people are consistent i thought this was interesting humphrey bogart was actually bald yes. for this movie <laughs> and i thought he did look a little sparse on top but um apparently he said it was because of the treatments he was taking like fertility treatments so that he and Lauren Bacall, who was his wife, his fourth wife, and they wanted to have kids, he was taking these shots. But he also just had like a hard living lifestyle. So plus being bald is hereditary. So maybe he was just going bald at that point. And I, th- I think I also read that all of all three of the men, excuse me, in this movie 
are are wearing they're wearing wigs. Yeah. I didn't notice when I was watching it, but they did say that Humphrey Bogart was definitely wearing a wig. So it must have been a pretty good one. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Shout out to the costume designer. <laughs> yes. Uh, this was one of the first American films to be made almost entirely on location outside of the country. I also kept reading that it was extremely expensive, and I think it's probably because, you know, they actually filmed it in the Sierra Madres, which is, I don't <laughs> think it was probably easy getting their camera equipment up there. Yeah. This, I thought, was fascinating. So Walter Houston speaks Spanish in the movie, but he apparently didn't know any Spanish and learned all of those lines phonetically. Like oh he listened God. to a recording of someone saying them in Spanish and then learned them that way. I think that's amazing. That is kind of amazing. <laughs> um, and it makes me oh. want to go back and like listen to it more closely to see it. I mean, I don't really have that much Spanish, but... <laughs> Yeah, I don't need, I don't have any, but I, like I thought his accent seemed a little, but I was like, well, he's just like a gringo, but yeah, I mean that's uh, what it sounded like to me that he was just like a, a gringo who learned Spanish as an adult, and so he has an American accent. <laughs> so you know the line where the bandits come up and they claim to be the police. Yes. Then Humphrey Bogart says, like, where are your badges? Yeah. And they say, badges? We ain't got no badges. Yeah. We don't need no badges. Yeah. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Well, yeah. apparently that's like a super famous line. Yes, that is a line that my dad told, repeated to us as when we were children before we, obviously, years before I saw this movie. <laughs> it's like one of the most quoted movie lines of all time. I feel like maybe I've heard it once or twice, but I had no connection between that and this movie. Isn't the thing about it is that it's one of the most quoted lines, but it's not actually in the movie in the same way that Play It Again Sam is not actually in the movie Casablanca. That's not what the line that people say is not actually the line that's in the movie. Because oh. the line that people like repeat from this movie, or quote unquote from this movie, is we don't need no stinking badges, but that's not actually what they say in the in the movie they say you know we don't need to show you any badges oh so it's misquoted mm -hmm. it is a good line even if it's not actually in the movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> So this movie, even though it was super expensive to make, the studio thought it was a risk, and they were worried about not making their money back, and it actually did not do well when it came out, but the critics liked it, so it kept getting re-released and re-released, and eventually it made a lot of money, and that's how it got into the canon, but they were not wrong, because it was... Like, it's sort of an atypical structure for a Western. It's yeah. not like a standard Western. So Steven Spielberg said that Humphrey Bogart's character in this movie was his inspiration for Indiana Jones. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Which, I mean, I only see it, like, a little bit in the look, but, like, not at all in the personality. Yeah, not at all in the personality. Because I mean, Indiana Jones is like, he's more quirky than cranky. Yeah. I don't know if this one is true or not, but I just liked it. So Walter Houston learned his, the jig he does, which was like my favorite scene in this movie. He supposedly learned from the playwright Eugene O'Neill <laughs> when he was acting in one of his plays. That whole scene was totally unscripted and Houston just, you know, improved it basically. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. He was really good at this movie. Um, yeah, he was my favorite part of this movie. <laughs> I know, mine too. Oh, and uh, the, the film took 
five and a half months to make and was almost a month over schedule. Oh my God. Also could have had to do with why it was so expensive. Yeah. So I think that's uh, that's all because we have a lot to talk about. Um, well, speaking of Walter Houston, I can say a little bit more about about him and who he is. He so like you said, he I think you said this. He won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role in The Treasure of Sierra Madre. He was the patriarch of it turns out now four generations of or actors, um, including his son John Houston, who directed this movie and has a bit part, and Angelica Houston, and and then it has continued to the the great grandchildren generation. Actually, all of his grandchildren have become actors, which is kind of amazing. Oh. <laughs> so he was born in 1883 in Toronto, where he went to public school. He was the son of a farmer who founded a construction company. His family had, had just moved from Orangeville, Ontario, where they were farmers, to to Toronto. And as he was growing up when he was a younger man, he, he worked in construction with um, with his dad and and attended the Shaw School of Acting. He made his stage debut in 1902 when he was almost 20. He was in a couple of touring shows, and then in 1904 he got married and gave up acting to work as a manager of a electrical power station in Missouri. And he apparently like continued to have that dump until 1909 when his marriage was sort of on the rocks. And he he started a, a vaudeville show with a woman who is an older actress named Bayonne Whipple, and and they worked together in like into the 1920s, so like almost well, if I guess a little bit more than a decade. And then 1924, he appeared in his first Broadway show, and then once sound movies really took off in Hollywood, he um, moved to Hollywood and and started fil- uh, appearing in films, sort of split half and half between character roles and as the leading man. So he appeared on in the Broadway adaptation of Sinclair Lewis's novel Dadsworth, and then ap- appeared in it again in the film version of it um, in the 1930s. And he sort of worked consistently throughout the 1930s and 1940s, both on stage and on screen. He had you know a, a reputation as being you know very distinguished. He, in 1941, he, he was in the movie The Maltese Falcon, which is, of course, another Humphrey Bogart movie, and that is, was also um, directed by John Huston. Um, his son, apparently, so John Huston in, in The Maltese Falcon, apparently thought it was funny to make his father do this scene in The Maltese Falcon over and over again, where he comes into the scene um, and dies <laughs> over and oh. over again. <laughs> They did ten different takes. Because <laughs> so, it's hilarious to watch your dad die. So funny. So in 1948, he starred in um, The Treasure of Sierra Madre. He won not only the Academy Award, but also the Golden Globe. He and his son were the first father-son combo to win Academy Awards at the same ceremony. He, in 1950, appeared in the movie September Affair, for which he also sang the... The title song, September Song, which was, you know, went on to become a extremely popular song in the 1950s and 1960s, and and was sort of like connected with him, you know, for all of those decades that it was popular. 
He died in 1950, two days after his 67th birthday of an aortic aneurysm. His legacy lives on, for the most part, in three succeeding generations of actors. Apparently, if you are a Houston, you must act. (laughs) I didn't make the connection between him and Angelica Houston until you said that, so... Yeah. She's great, too. Yeah, I really like her. Uh, How old did you say he was when he died? 67. Because in this movie, I read that he thought he was too young to play this role initially. In 1950, he was 67. So when this movie came out in 1948, he was 65. That he, like, he was still thinking of himself as a leading man, but it was, then it's kind of like, no, now you have to play the old man. Especially if you're hard living like the character in his movie. If you were that age, you would be weathered and yeah well and if he were a, a 67 65 year old woman he wouldn't have any roles at all so oh correct oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well i can tell you about humphrey bogart yay bogey <laughs> um full name humphrey deforest bogart sure well he was born on christmas day in 1899 in new york city and his father was a surgeon who apparently was also an addict, but kept it hidden well. And his mother was a magazine illustrator and also uh, an advocate for suffrage. And he was educated at Trinity School in New York City and then sent to Phillips Academy in Andover. So, you know, sort of upper classish. Um, <laughs> sort of, and, just a little bit. <laughs> the The plan was for him to go to medical school at Yale but he was expelled from Phillips, and then he joined the Naval Reserve, and he served in World War One. From 1920 to 22, he managed a stage company owned by a family friend and did, like, all sorts of tasks for them. And then he started acting and became a regular on Broadway. The market crashed in 1929, and that hit theater really hard, so he switched to film. Oh. Uh, in 1930, he got a contract with Fox, and made his feature film debut in a short called Broadway's Like That, co-starring with Ruth Edding and Joan Blondell. Um, but then Fox, I guess, wasn't super taken with him and released him after two years. Uh, and then he Poor had Moon Fox. Money. I know. You could have made money, but you blew it. <laughs> <laughs> and look at them. After... <laughs> I know. They never recovered. <laughs> So he had like a couple more years of minor roles and then his breakout was in The Petrified Forest in 1936 with Warner Brothers. And he only got the part after Leslie Howard. Yeah, Leslie Howard. I know, popping up again. Threatened Warner Brothers that he would quit unless Bogart was given the role of Duke Manti, um, which he had played in the Broadway production alongside Howard. Humphrey Bogart only had to promise the to name one of his kids, Leslie Howard, in response. <laughs> <laughs> I know. There was nothing in it for him. <laughs> um, the film was a big success, and then he got a long-term contract with Warner Brothers. And then from 1936 to 1940, he appeared in 28 films, and he was usually like a tough guy gangster type. And in 1941 alone, he was in High Sierra, uh, The Maltese Falcon, and then he followed that with Casablanca in 1942, The Big Sleep in 1946, and Key Largo in 1948. So he was kind of just like banging out these hits. Yeah. 
he apparently was very well read and liked to be around sort of intellectuals and artists and he was one of the founding members of the Rat Pack. In 1947, he and Lauren Bacall protested the House Un-American Activities Committee, so they were on the right side of that anti-communist yeah. Hollywood movement. He formed his own production company, then that was in his production company was involved with the treasure of the Sierra Madre and he won the best actor academy award for the african queen yeah. in 1951 and then he was nominated for Casablanca and um, the Kane Mutiny and then he died in his sleep on January 14, 1957 at age 57 um, at his hollywood home following surgery and throat cancer oh yeah it, did, it seemed like his health wasn't really good towards the end, and he smoked and drank a lot. Yeah, so. <laughs> hard living. Yes. Have you seen him in other... Well, obviously you've seen Casablanca, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I Have I told you I have seen him in Casablanca? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen him in a few other things. Offhand, I, I've seen him in um, some of the Raymond Chandler, you know, like The Big Sleep. Maltese Falcon, I've seen. That's a really excellent movie. Yeah, I was thinking that would be a good one for us to do. Yeah. At some point. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, um, it's a, it's, like, I, I think that very much typifies the the kind of character that Humphrey Bogart seemed to play, this sort of hard-boiled, um, also sort of down-on-his-luck kind of character. You know, and like this character in this, in Treasure of Sierra yeah. Madre, that's like, you know, fighting tooth and nail to have find some success. I liked, like, in his role in Casablanca that he has some honor, you know, so he is, like, this tough guy, but there's also that. I thought that, I mean, this was a very unflattering role for him. Yeah. But, I, I, I mean, I guess it's, it's also fun, like, meaty to play the villain, kind of, so. Yeah. He was good in it. Yeah, he's a good villain, I guess. <laughs> Although there's, isn't there that literary rule that writers talk about how like every villain needs to have some redeeming characteristics? And I did not think he had any redeeming characteristics at all. No, I mean the only thing I could think of. I mean, this isn't a redeeming characteristic, but it's more like apologizing for him is that he was in such severe poverty in the beginning that he was just terrified of going back to that. <laughs> And would do anything to avoid it. Yeah. I mean, so, okay, so if we start at the beginning of this movie where we are introduced to this character played by Humphrey Bogart named Dabs, you know, we, we see him over the course of, like, the first, I don't know, 15 minutes, like, as sort of a grifter begging other Americans. It's never clear to me how he, as American, an American, is there in Mexico. I don't know if I... I missed that. Like, did he go there for some... Did he go there for a job of some kind, and then, you know, that didn't work out, or that finished, and then he was stuck there? How did he come to be there in the first place? I wondered the same thing, and I don't think it's explained at all in the movie. Like, at first, I kind of assumed that he was a prospector to begin with, because I knew what the movie was about, but that was obviously not the case, because he didn't know anything about it. Right, and it was unclear how long he'd been there because he also, you know, when they get he and he meets he meets up with Curtin and they like sort of, you know, are buddies and they get a job with a guy who like is another American who ends up like stiffing them for their wages. But like when they go to work, he like he can't handle the heat. So I also wonder like 
what kind of work was he doing and also how is he like has he only been there a couple of weeks or days or something like how how is it that he hasn't like acclimated to the heat i don't know i I mean the one thing that we can get more into this with social justice but I did think the movie did a good job of depicting severe poverty in the beginning of like all these men are like basically just homeless and they didn't have almost anything like the, you know, nothing to eat, like nowhere to sleep. Yeah. Basically just like wandering around hoping someone will give them a job. Cause a couple of other movies we've watched have talked about poverty, but, but a lot of it was more like genteel poverty, (laughs) not, not this like, I mean, his their clothes were, like, falling apart. Yeah. So, and it's it seemed pretty bad. Yeah, and so I wondered, like, how, how you know, for these two characters that we end up following around, like, how, how long has it been? It seemed like Curtin had been there last time, you know, had a sense that he was killing time and trying to make a buck so that he could go back to the United States. Yeah. He seemed a little bit less beaten down than bogey didn't you think it was terrible when they did get work with that guy and then here he was like just using them as slave labor Mm -hmm. and cheated them all yeah you know poor dobbs he has the he has the intuition to say like oh we're gonna go with you to the hotel where you say you're gonna get your money because you know just as a like he he gets has the sense obviously that they're about to get stiffed and you know and then you know, and sort of backs off, and and then they do get stiffed, and yeah, that just, that sucks. Yeah, it reminded me of, you know, a certain Cheeto-colored president (laughs) doing this to some Polish immigrant workers. Yeah. Yeah, where have we seen this before? And the worst part was that, like, when the guy comes, they see him again later, he's very well-dressed, he clearly has money, he has a woman on his arm. So it's not like, oh, I just don't have the money to pay you. It's like, no, I'm just doing this because I'd rather keep this money. Right. Yeah. Who does that sound like? Uh, but in so, his, in the in the depths of his, like, despair, he buys a lottery. Dobbs buys a lottery ticket. And then it's sort of after having, like, this, like, horrible job experience where his wages are stolen from him or not even really taken care of, then Dobbs, like, wins the lottery, right, at a fortuitous moment where he and Curtin are deciding they're going to go go dig for gold, which is sort of, yeah. a like, a nice literary device, I guess, at the beginning when, because he, he's sort of dogged by this kid who wants to sell him a lottery ticket. And so it's nice that that, like, that loop is closed <laughs> pretty quickly. Yeah. Comes back again. I mean, one of the themes that keeps coming up with Dobbs, it... it, it seemed like he was almost like an addict because yeah. you know he won that lottery money and he could have done something else with it but instead he chose to invest it in another gamble right and then even when they are like they found gold and they're making money he's he's not satisfied the way the other guys are he's like no we should be going for more like yeah we should be aiming for this much, and it's never enough. Right. And he doesn't want to leave when they made thirty-five thousand dollars. He wounds to leave when they made seventy. Yeah, and I'm sure once they made seventy, he'd be like, "Oh, well, it could have been ninety. Can we talk about the Houston character? Because yes, I I thought this could have been a totally different movie. In that, like when they first meet him, he kind of seems crazy. He's talking about how everyone's like killing each other when they go prospecting. Yep. And it seemed like if this had been 
a different movie, it, that would have been the setup for all along. He's going to seem like the normal one who has it together. Right. And then at the end, he's going to like turn around and kill you and take the gold. Right. Cause he really, after talking about his terrible experience with this prospecting, he's so eager to sign up to do it with these people that he literally just met in a flop house. Right. Right. He doesn't know them. He already knows that it's a terrible experience. But I guess maybe he's just figuring, you know, like, I've already, like, hit bottom. I can't get worse. Um, Little does he know. But then his character was, I mean, he actually was just, like, sort of a consistently a nice guy Mm -hmm. who had it together throughout the movie. Yeah, and when, like, Dobbs, like, suddenly goes off the rails, he's, you know, he's the voice of reason. Sort of a nice surprise. Yeah, I mean, again, not knowing anything much about this movie before we watched, I I really thought that Dobbs' character was going to be the hero, and then Houston was going to be the villain, and it really flipped. And I was actually surprised, like, that um, Dobbs was not redeemed, and he ends up dying before the end of the movie. Like, he is the main character for at least the first, like, half of the movie. Yeah. And then it switches. So that I feel like that must have been pretty unusual for that time. Yeah, I was surprised that he that he died um, before the end. And honestly, I, I watched the first probably two-thirds of this movie, and then, you know, in one go, and then the next night, you know, I was going to watch the last 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever. And I was sort of, I, I, I wasn't patient enough to just watch the rest of it, so I looked up the ending to see what would happen, and I was shocked. <laughs> I was like, wait a second, what? Did you think that it was pretty violent? I guess it wasn't any more violent than I thought it was going to be. Like, that I, it wasn't, like, needlessly violent. Or Although, you know, when they're, like, at the end, you know, when they, like, get out the machete and hack him, <laughs> hack him to death off screen, I mean, that was a little bit like, okay. Like, we spent the last two hours with this guy. Apparently, in the original cut, they show them decapitating him. Oh, my God. But then the uh, censors wouldn't let it through. So, yeah, I was like, I'm kind of glad they didn't show that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't really need to know how exactly he dies. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was really interesting when they were taking the train out. How, like, they're on the train, there's all these people on the train, and all of a sudden these bandits just ride up and start shooting at the train. Yeah. Which seems, like, you know, terrifying. And then they, their group just reacts calmly, and it's like, all right, like, everyone get your gun and we'll start shooting back at them. Like, that's the built-in defense system against bandits. Like, the people on the train just have guns that they shoot back at Yeah, I mean, I guess... And then they're all like... Yeah, and then they just keep going on. (laughs) Yeah, then they're just like, oh, how many did you kill? How many did you kill? I think I got one. Like, it's... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's just, like, a reflection of, like, wilderness frontier (laughs) of the 1920s. Yeah, I mean, I guess you just have to be very comfortable with the fact that you were going to have to murder people as, like, a way to get around in life. Yeah, like, a very specific kind of self-defense. I really liked all the burrows in the movie. <laughs> yeah. I like that they did a lot of, like, they, they when they talked to the burrows, they just said, burrows, burrows, burrows. <laughs> I just thought they did a lot of great background acting. <laughs> 
Academy Awards to all of them. What did you think about the the mining, I guess the mining infrastructure that they, my understanding is that they're like going into the mountains to find a place that has not been touched yet in order mm-hmm. to, you know, to be the first ones to stake a claim in this particular part of the mountains. And that, you know, they're sort of, they're not doing it entirely legally, but, you know, it, in it's, I got the sense that, like, lots of people didn't do things like that entirely legally. So it was, like, not unusual what they were doing. But then there's, like, a jump cut to, you know, once they, like, sort of decide that they're going to stake their claim there. And, you know, and then there's the, the, like, the irrigation to, you know, run the water th- so that they can, you know, sift through the dirt in order to, like, find the gold. And then there's this mine gets set up and then you know, collapses on Dobbs and he has, and Curtin has to pull him out. But, you know, it wasn't clear to me how much time had passed and also how far they were actually from the village. I couldn't decide if it was like an inconsistency in the film where like they're close enough to the village that like it takes a while to get out there, but, but, you know, that they still can go back to get supplies as one person. But then, like, when they're trying to get out of there, then it takes, like, days and days and days. And it's, you know, even though they're going to a different town, I guess. But somehow they also have the resources to, like, set up this mine and set up this, this like, sluice thing. Yeah. I thought that was, like, a Hollywood device. I had the same thing in my notes about, like, the infrastructure they create would have been impossible for them to set up, given their equipment and them just being three... I mean, they built like an entire mine with like a structure yeah and then like they had all these shoots and everything I don't know I don't think they could have done that but it did say they were there for months but I still I think it would have been much more primitive than what they showed in the movie yeah well and especially given that like Walter Houston's character Howard is the only one who knows what he's doing yeah yeah I mean I I agree with you and it it wasn't clear to me how far away like it seemed like it was supposed to be close enough that you could travel to the village and back like in one long day yeah so they couldn't have been that far away yeah even though it takes them like days and days it seems to like get where they're going in the first place yeah, I don't know. I think those those are just inconsistencies. Yeah. What did you th- um, What did you think about Cody, the guy from Texas who shows up when Curtin is in town um, getting supplies? This other American, like Cody, goes you know comes up to him and tries to like get him to say that he's a you know a gold digger, and Curtin won't do it, and then Cody ends up following him back to the camp. Well, I thought the progression of their interaction with him was crazy because it went from like he was just like all right well I figure that we have three options and like one of them is you killing me but I'm okay with that and like (laughs) you know he just presents it like well you could run me off you could take me in or you could kill me well it's like your choice yeah what well, and, and then, then they decide to kill him, but then at that exact moment, the, you know, the bandits come up, so then Howard's like, yeah, just kidding, we're not going to kill you, you know, come and be on our side, and he just is like, okay, sure. <laughs> like, these guys yeah, were about to kill you. <laughs> and then, like, two minutes later, he's dead, and then they're like, well, we kind of feel bad for his widow now, so maybe we're going to give her some money. I'm like, dude, you, like, if this had gone... If the bandits had come five minutes later, you would have been the one who killed him. So, 
Yeah. And that and now you feel bad for his family? Like And it didn't like I don't I didn't know if that was supposed to like what that was supposed to show us about those the characters. Like it didn't reveal anything new that I didn't didn't already know. Roger Ebert, I was reading the review Robert that Roger Ebert wrote for this movie and he specifically said like that the only character that's likable is killed, referring to Cody. And I was like, I mean, he's not the only character that that's likable. Likable. I mean, he is likable, but he's only on screen for like five, ten minutes. So I don't like. Why <laughs> is he on screen yeah, at all? And I didn't think he was that likable. I mean, I would rather have Walter Houston. He was likable. Yeah. <laughs> Curtin is sort of, you know, he's the young guy that is sort of, is still impressionable, and he doesn't make the best choices, but he's not, he's not the biggest asshole on this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the only thing I got out of that interaction was just that these are people who have their own particular moral code, and that's what they're following, yeah. and, you know, you kind of have to acknowledge that at any point you might have to kill someone for a dumb reason or be killed for a dumb reason, and that's just part of your lifestyle if you choose to be there. Yeah. Like, I was baffled by that progression within the span of a couple minutes. Like, oh, I'm here to take your gold. Oh, you're gonna kill me. Oh, now we're fighting the bandits together. Oh, now I'm dead. Now I'm dead. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of well i don't know if it was just my version of the movie but was the spanish subtitled when you watched it no i'm glad that you you brought this up it was not subtitled and you know i have i hadn't i have enough spanish that i could tell that like tell sort of what was happening but could also tell that like their facial expressions and their like mannerisms i felt like i was missing something and if if I didn't have any Spanish at all, I would have no idea what they were talking about. And I have no Spanish at all. And it was fine with some of the scenes, like with the bandits, because there weren't long exchanges. But when they went into the village yes. and it was going on for a long time, I was like, I, f I feel like I'm watching a foreign language movie and I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Well, and in that scene, I forget I forget what actually, I, I think I wrote down in my notes somewhere, like, oh, if, I, if you didn't have any Spanish, you wouldn't know what was happening. I don't know what I did. I, I wrote down somewhere about, like, what it was that they are actually, because it is sort of... Was it when they were trying to sell the burrows? That might have been, yeah, that might have been it, where they're trying to sell the burrows, burrows, and then, oh yeah, so in town, the boy is, like, at the, the burrow shop, notices that the, these burrows have the brand on them that, like, w was the, like, the brand of the horses that went with the Americans, this crowd gathers, and the bandits are having this conversation with the, the burrow burrow shop owner, you know, and, and I think the burrow shop either, like, the burrow shop owner says to the bandits, these are not your burrows, I am not bu buying them from you, they are not yours, and, you know, and the bandits are like, what do you mean they're not ours? But, like, if you don't have, if you don't know Spanish, you have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know, I mean, it was seemed clear to me from the expressions that the villagers were on to the bandits, but... I, I had no idea what the conversation was. And I was curious about that choice to just have it in Spanish with no subtitles. Yeah, I mean, there were some, this is, I guess, partly social justice, but there were, it was remarkable to me that the sort of inverse experience of, like, 
Dobbs and Curtin, Curtin to a last extent, but Dobbs, Dobbs particularly, where he did, it was very clear he did not speak any Spanish. And however long he'd been in Mexico, he had not learned any Spanish at all. And he, it wasn't that he, like, just, like, shouted in English to these, like, Mexicans, but he just had never bothered to learn it. And, you know, and so to think about that as sort of the inverse of many experiences, you know, of, like, conservative Americans now where, you know, you know, Mexican immigrants come to the United States not speaking any English, not because they don't want to necessarily, but because they can't, like, it's hard, difficult to learn a new language. And, yeah. <laughs> and I sort of liked that there was such a clear, like, similar experience in a way. I mean, to, to me, that was the only, like, possibly redeeming quality of, of Dobbs. It was like, you know, is there, is there, did you make a conscious decision not to speak English or, or not to speak Spanish, but do you have, like, PTSD or something for some reason yeah. <laughs> that you can't learn it? Or, like, have you just been so, you know, are there enough Americans? And, like, which came first? Are there enough Americans that you you only need to beg from the Americans or are you only begging from the Americans because you don't speak Spanish and you can't beg I from... <laughs> Even though I didn't know what was being said in those conversations, I, I didn't feel like it detracted from the overall movie. So mm. part of me thought they were just going for authenticity. Yeah. Were you surprised by the progression of the Dobbs character that, you know, he goes from being seemingly reasonable in the beginning to, like, literally shooting his friend by the end of it? I mean, I think there, yes, my notes are like, what the hell is happening to Dobbs? Why is he, do like, why is this happening this way? <laughs> Why is he such an asshole? Yeah. He he was pretty hot. And it seemed like it happened fast. And yeah. the other two guys were just kind of acting normal and he was just like, No, you're gonna steal my gold. Like, what's happening? Yeah, we get and a they were like, No. Yeah, we get just enough foreshadowing when they're in the flop house and um Howard is talking about, you know, how men's hearts are turned or whatever, however he says it by gold and, you know, seemingly reasonable men turn bad and Dobbs is like oh I would never be like that and I'm like, okay it's a movie so you're definitely going to be like that but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I was I was surprised and of course you know Roger Ebert and everybody else is like oh it's a this is a great movie about a man descending into madness it's like yeah but I actually wrote I wrote something like that that was like he's losing his mind or like basically that is what it is about yeah are you ready to talk about costumes? I am, and the only thing I want to say about costumes is that those the prospector pants that they're all wearing with the suspenders look extremely comfort comfortable and I only went over there as those from now on. They did look good. <laughs> I mean, the costumes are not glamorous in this movie, but I do think they did a good job of making everything look, you know, like it was threadbare and um, really old and dirty. <laughs> so, yeah. I would say A plus for authenticity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. Yeah, and there aren't, this is maybe the point to mention it, but there are, are very, very few women characters in this movie, aside from some, uh, you know, the women, the women who are like arm candy for, for 
McCormick, the guy, the or McCormick or McConnell, the the guy who stiffs him for the stiffs them for the money at the beginning, and then there are some um, native Mexican women when Howard is like <laughs> suddenly goes and uses his quote Boy Scout t- tricks to save the boy's yeah. life. Um, but there aren't. Yeah, no. what the heck was he doing? I mean, this is not Bechdel testy, but what? What kind of me- medicine was that where he just kept lifting the boys' arms up and putting them back down? I don't know. I mean, and he referred to them as Boy Scout tricks, and I was like, I don't know. I was a, a Girl Scout for a, a decade, and I have no idea what the heck you're doing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was like, and then he just, like, put a damp rag on his stomach, and the boy was like, I'm awake now. <laughs> it's fine. So I think we can safely say that this does not pass the Bechdel test, and there's really no female characters. Yes, I think. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, doesn't pass the Bechdel test at all. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Do we cover all of the social justice themes that like crop up in this movie? The, um, the poverty. poverty and homelessness mental health issues well the one thing that occurred to me is that you could do like this could be a marxist movie because yes oh yeah totally like the flop house scene walter houston says how gold actually isn't worth anything except the labor that you perform to extract it oh yeah which is a completely got like communist idea and then it's it's really a parable about how money is evil and corrupts people yeah and like greed and capitalism if you think about it yeah i hadn't even thought about that yes it's totally a communist movie (laughs) so let me look at it this way i like this movie a little bit better (laughs) actually (laughs) i mean it is true that like it gets down to that sort of like fundamental level of what are you willing to do to accrue a lot of a certain resource and yeah you know what does that do to society yeah so i mean i doubt humphrey bogart would have been like yes this is a communist movie but i mean he did go and protest the the huac committee uh, you know investigation so maybe maybe it was maybe he really was pro communist and I mean, wait, you heard it here first, podcast listeners. <laughs> Humphrey Bogart was a communist, and we... We got a pinky here. <laughs> That's right. We love him for it. So, I have to say that, although I, like, I could recognize, like, there were some good performances in this movie, It like, the production was good of this movie, I did not like it. I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I watched it. I know. With, without, and I, there's no... Not only would I not have chosen to watch this, but I would never have finished it. Um, well, I mean, I already, you know, texted you, you know, off <laughs> off screen, shall we say, <laughs> to apologize for pick, picking this movie. I don't know what I was thinking. I think maybe well, I'm I like... I'm sorry that we watched it, but I just... it's This is going to be one of those ones where I can say, like, objectively, this is a good movie. I never want to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is never... You're not watching this movie again. We're making a pact. <laughs> We're pro and pro communist, uh, you know, ideas of you know taking care of the poor and everyone doing the work that needs you know needs to get done or whatever. 
we are not pro this movie. And this particular, this is like we getting our payback for like having the one western that we did watch be something that was like an enjoyable Quaker movie. (laughs) This is like a real western, and I was like, oh yeah, this is why I don't like westerns. Yeah, it's fine. So yeah, what rating? I was just gonna say, Emily, what rating would you give this movie? Um, I, alright, this, I think this is the lowest rating that I have given <laughs> any movie. Oh go. This is just my personal rating. But I'm gonna go one and a half stars. I'm gonna go back into the Sirens archives to determine if this is actually your lowest score. I, I agree that one and a half stars. I may have given an American Empire as one and a half stars. <laughs> you might have to rethink that now. <laughs> yeah, which movie did I hate more? Treasure of Sierra Madre or An American in Paris? Just At least An American in Paris had, like, a dancing Gene Kelly. Yeah, and, like, a 35-year age difference. <laughs> yeah. They, no, and a guy right. who stalked a woman. It's a girl. A girl. Yeah. <laughs> there may have been some harassment. There may have been some harassment. At least there was no harassment in this movie. There was just, you know, threatening. There were just no women. There were just no women, and there was just, like, threatening men and masculinity out of control. Which... Yeah, toxic masculinity. That's right. Toxic masculinity and communism. I mean, yeah, I probably would still give it a 1.5. Given our, like, informal metrics that we use to um, evaluate movies, I'm glad I finally saw a Walter Houston movie and glad that I, like, saw a John Houston movie sort of knowing that it was a John Houston movie. Yeah. All right. Well, it seems like we're of a cool... (laughs) (laughs) So, what's our next movie, Hillary? Um, what is our next movie? The Ghost of Mrs. Mule. Oh! Um, stay tuned. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter, at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all... Tomorrow is another day.